Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. My name is Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, we're going to venture off the beaten path and discuss some recent news. In case you haven't heard, Ronald Butch DeFeo has died. He apparently died on March 12, 2021. So in honor of his heinous crimes, tonight we are going to discuss the Amityville Murders. And joining me is my special horror film guest. We always watch horror films together. Usually under her arm, I'm watching them. (laughs) Is Jamie. Jamie, you want to say hello? Hello. So, do you remember seeing this movie? I do remember seeing this movie. My whole family is horror fans. I grew up watching horror movies. I was probably... Well, I was only two years old when the incident occurred. Um, the movie came out in 79, which would have made me seven. Okay. Um, but I was probably preteen, early teen when I watched the movie. Okay. Now, I know you're a book reader. Did you, by any chance, read the book? I have not read the book. Okay. Okay. Because, obviously, there's the murders, and then there's the paranormal situation that follows. Correct. Uh, well, we'll get into that as well. So, this is going to be... Uh, again, what happened, the murders, and then the Lutz family situation. So like I said before, Ronald DeFeo, but he liked to be called Butch, but we're going to call him Ron or Ronnie. Uh, He has died in the hospital while serving several life sentences. He was, quote unquote, the lone survivor of the family massacre that was committed in Long Island 47 years ago. So, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't even around <laughs> when this happened. <laughs> but, uh, but 47 years ago, obviously this horrific moment, this horrific act makes world headlines. And that's just the beginning. Again, it's this incident followed by the Highly controversial and widely disputed incident with the Lutz families. So, of course, I'm speaking of the Annieville Horror Phenomenon and Hauntings. So, a little bit of history. Again, not everybody knows <laughs> or, or was born. <laughs> so, we're looking at 30 miles outside of New York City. I actually didn't realize how close Amityville was to New York, the city. In a small town called Amityville stands a Dutch colonial-style home, complete with five bedrooms, three-and-a-half bathrooms, a boathouse off the canal, a basement, a nice dining room. And with this house, it's then given address of 112 Oceans Avenue. You know, it's just a very nice, substantial family home. It was built in 1925 by Jesse Purdy, 
And over the years, it gets sold and purchased without incidents. Then on June 28th, 1965, it gets purchased by the DeFeo family. Now, the DeFeo family, of course, consists of Ronald DeFeo Sr., the dad, Luis DeFeo, the mom, Ronald Jr., the supposed killer, and his four siblings, Don, who was 18 at the time, Allison, who was 13, brother Mark, who was 12, and John Matthew, who was 9. And apparently, they were actually a very dysfunctional family. Daddy was very abusive towards mom, towards the children, but mom pretty much remained nonchalant. She didn't really engage. She didn't try to protect them. And I think there was some indication that because Ron Jr., Ronnie, was the eldest and had been living with them the longest, he sustained and was subjected to a lot of the abuse. I mean, like, like dad was having meltdowns on the family. Right. He's quite a bit older than the rest of the siblings. Right. Right. And I mean, and if, I mean, the children span, you know, two decades at least. Right. The youngest being nine and the oldest sister being 18. So, and mom is only 42. So, <laughs> I mean, that's a, you know, do the math on that one. So, this is possibly what leads Ronnie to engaging and having a substance abuse problem as an adult. And he gets involved to the point where he's a drug user and he could barely hold down a job. And he too actually ends up having a bit of a violent temper. And there's even an incident where he not only lashes out, you know, back at his father, but he even grabs a gun, a loaded gun, and points it to his dad's head and he pulls the trigger. But the gun actually fails to discharge. So, I mean, it's... A pretty intense moment. The son actually tries to kill the dad. And this incident actually scares daddy so much, he actually starts to attend church shortly after, you know, almost dying. Right. So, again, all of this anger from the abuse, the drug use, his life has not worked out. In fact, he's living in the basement with his parents because he can't really manage a job. He can't pay for things. And they kind of see him being there as an opportunity to kind of revamp and get better. But that's not what's happening, especially when daddy is still doing, you know, the dysfunctional things for everybody. But this combination actually sets the stage for the massacre that is to come. So here's how it kind of plays out. Right. On the evening of November 13th, 1974, at approximately 6.30 p.m., Ronnie walks into Henry's Bar in Annieville and basically screams, please, please, you've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. And then he proceeds to fall to his knees and begin screaming and crying and just immediately draws all of his friends who are like, what are you talking about? So... The people are, like, completely stunned. Again, this is 1974. It is not 2021. Right. And in response to seeing their friend in this absolute distraught state, 
a group of them actually follow him back to the house. And this group includes his best friend, a Robert Bobby Kelsky, along with a Joey Yeswit, a John Altieri, Al Saxton, and a William Scordamaglia. That's my, my best guess, guys. Okay, so they all race back to the DeFeo's house, Ronnie's house. And once there, they find the door, the front door unlocked. The house itself is dark as silent. The dog, Shaggy, the family dog, begins barking as the men enter. And they find Shaggy actually tied up inside of the kitchen's back door. So whatever happened, the, the, A, the dog safe, but... For they find the dog basically kind of on a leash, and but inside the house, correct. Now it's Bobby that takes the lead. Now Bobby's the best friend. Uh, he takes the lead and, and he leads everybody upstairs. And the first room they enter is the master bedroom, which is on the left. And when and it's it's pitch dark. When he turns on the light, th- there they see this horrifying scene. Of the lifeless bodies of Ron Sr. and the mom. The dad is sprawled out. He's got a bullet hole in his back where there's like a dry stream of blood that's pretty visible. But the mom is actually covered in blankets. She's like, somebody covered her. Right. Then they go on to find the siblings. They find Allison. They find Mark and John Matthew all seemingly shot in their beds while apparently sleeping. And then they find Don on the third floor. It's Yetzwit who calls 911, and he speaks with Officer Kenneth Walski, probably mispronouncing that, (laughs) of the Amityville, uh, I was going to actually say the Amityville Horror Police, but (laughs) (laughs) Amityville Police Department. And when the cops roll up, you know, they're all outside in the front yard trying to comfort Ronnie, who supposedly is sobbing uncontrollably and screaming things like, I'm not going back in that house. My mother and father are dead. And he's even, like, pounding his fist into the car. Hmm. Like, he's, like... Putting on a show. Correct. Correct. He's got to throw everyone off. Right. So... What they do is they, they go inside, they, they convince, and I'm using air quotes when I say that, Ronnie to come back inside, and they sit down at the kitchen table, and the officer looks around, and he sees what the, this horrible, horrible right. massacre, and he's like, holy shit, right. this is real. I need some backup. Correct. So he calls headquarters to report the murders, right. which I actually think is interesting because nowadays... You know, officers use radios, right? cell phones. Definitely a difference in technology. And the response is immediate. Detectives and, and, and other police officers literally come to the house in droves. And they're just, uh, this is unreal to them, okay? I, I mean, I don't know of any, about that time, recent family massacres. Right. In the 74. Well, I'm so, sure for most of them, it was like first time ever dealing with anything like that. Right, right. There's a one or two murders, but there's not right a whole family gone. Now, of course, the second, you know, the 
police roll up, the word breaks out. Newspaper, newspaper, news reporters swarm the house as well. Now, at that time, Detective Gasper Randazzle, that's a real name. Okay. I did not make that up. (laughs) Who worked for Suffolk County. He's the one who questions Ronnie. And despite his dramatic display, he's actually able to explain what he had done that day and how he found the bodies. And then he was even able to explain who he thought was responsible. And he immediately points the finger and, and, and tries to apply the suggestion that this was a mafia hit. And when they push him for like a name, he's like, Louis Fallini is to blame. So they're like, oh my God, he's, this person's a legit uh, gangster. And they kind of start discussing even putting Ronnie into protective custody because of how convincing Ronnie is and how he's, like, naming names that are legit. Right. So what they dis- what they do, though, is they, they have him initially sign off. They take him down to the police station for further questioning. But, I mean, they're totally kind of believing this situation. And even then, he's like, it's Fallini. I know it's Fallini. He did it. He did this to my family. And he even says to them, you know, I know I've been, you know, not the best. I've done some bad things, but I I know it's him. In fact, he, we even allowed Fellini to live with us for a little bit. So he actually knew where my dad kept the cash and the gems. I didn't know people really kept gems, but apparently this is a thing. And so, I mean, he's just feeding them this you know, line. Right. So as they keep questioning him, Ronnie's like becoming more and more intense and willing to cooperate. And like I say, he's willing to admit, you know, all these other things, but basically he's getting them to focus on Fellini. And once they get basically everything they have from him, the detectives are like, you know what, son, you know, we're going to set up a cot for you in our, in our office space. And we want you just to rest. And he's like, great, thanks. While the cops actually head back to the house. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the obvious reasons. Right. They have to now investigate. Correct. Correct. So it's curious. I wonder if he was trying to set up Fellini, right? Is that right. Because he had issues with, I mean, with his own personal history and um, issues. He- that's actually a great speculation right there because I didn't, I mean, if he was part of the mob and to kind of mention something that's going to get mentioned later, there was a thought that Ronnie was dealing drugs, mm-hmm. not just, not just using. Correct. Okay. So it's entirely possible that, you know, through his drug use and or right dealings, he came across Fellini. Right. And maybe owed him money. Right. Got himself in trouble somehow. Correct. Fellini was going to be coming after him, so. Right, right. I mean, who knows why he's naming this specific person. Right. But he is naming a legit mobster. So, obviously, there's something there. But overall, right now, with just the information I've provided, some heads should be tilting, like, wait a minute. Right. He he walked into the bar at 6.30 at night, and all the bodies are found in their beds, in their pajamas. Who goes to bed? At 6.30 
at night. I mean, that's not. Well, you got to remember it was 47 years ago. Correct. But I mean, 630. So they're in their pajamas. They're in their beds. The dog's tied up. Why? Right. I mean, who ties up the dog? In the house. Right. Somebody who doesn't want to hurt the dog. Or doesn't want the dog trying to protect somebody. Correct. Interfere. Right. Right. Now, Ronnie's sleeping on a cot. They're thinking about giving him protective custody because it's a mobster, potentially mobster related. They head back to the scene of the crime. All, Like I said, all the family members are in their pajamas. They're lying face down on their stomachs, all in their bed. It's And it's interesting because only the mom and the dad have two bullet holes in them. Again, the mom is covered with a blanket, but the sisters, Allison and Dawn, were also covered with blankets. The two young brothers were not, but all four siblings was killed with only one bullet. They come to believe that mom and dad were killed first, followed by the younger siblings and then Dawn being last. And if, you know, you look at the house and the levels of the house, obviously the murderer just worked his way up. Right. But this should be kind of odd because this is a rifle. Right. Yeah. High caliber rifle. Correct. You shoot mom or dad four times. Mm -hmm. Somebody. Somebody's going to wake up. Correct. Correct. So it just seems funny that they're all in their bed. And especially when the oldest sister, who's like on the third floor, you know, what's going on? I'm out. Right. I mean, somebody should have managed to get out of the house. Correct. In theory, right? So to add all this, the the detectives are looking around and they're picking up things and their things aren't making sense. And evidence at the scene actually begins to suggest that mom and the 13-year-old Allison was actually awake at the time of their deaths. So, you know, they they were woken up. Knew it was coming. Right. Well, mom probably had a first clue. Right. Allison maybe heard it. Maybe came out to find out what's going on. Like I said, four shots mm-hmm. bef- just for the parents alone. During their search, they find a box of Marlin thirty-five caliber ammunition, which is the type of rifle right that gets used. So it's the exact ammunition of the exact <laughs> of the gun that kills them. And the detectives also very quickly learn that Ronnie is a bit of a gun fanatic like he intimidated and harassed the neighbors to the point where they weren't even they didn't even want to engage with the guy and again there was the incident with his dad so now they're actually starting to string things together the next morning the detectives meet with ronnie again he's asleep on the couch (laughs) on the cot right in in the uh, police file room and immediately You know, after hearing all this, after seeing this doesn't make a lot of sense, Detective Harris informs him of his rights. And just immediately, Ronnie becomes upset, and he starts saying things like, you don't have to do that. It's, you know, Fellini. He's the guy you want, not me. I mean, he's ready. Right. But you know what actually kind of kills me? The guy was asleep. He slept. After, yeah. All of it. Right. Like. He really thought he got away with it. Mm-hmm. It kills me. So now hours of intense questioning begins. Because obviously, 
you have six dead bodies and a whole island, right? A little rocked. So you need to solve this. Right. In fact, the detectives question him so long that another group of detectives actually end up tapping out the original group <laughs> of detectives. Like, dude, it's sundown. Right. Go home. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get him. And so he starts talking to Detective Dennis Rafferty and Lieutenant Robert Dunn. And at this point, Rafferty's like, he's pointing out all the discrepancies in Ronnie's version of events and his involvement. But Ronnie's sticking to his story. He's sticking to the Fellini story. He even goes to far as far to say as Louis Fellini woke him up at gunpoint, made him accompany him while Fellini actually killed everybody. Right. And he even goes as far as describing how he discarded the evidence in a sewer in Brooklyn. So he's got, you know, multiple versions of the same event. And finally, Rafferty's like, did it really happen that way? And at that point in time, Ron's like, no. It all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. And then, so eventually it all comes out. Right. He confesses. He claims that he killed him about approximately 3.15 in the morning. He goes on to explain that he took a bath. He changed his clothes. He even explained where he discarded crucial evidence, such as the bloodstained clothes and the rifle, the, the Marlin rifle, and the cartridges he used to carry out the killings. And then he went to work as usual, like nothing ever happened. That's crazy. So, obviously, there's something really not wrong with this guy. Really not right with this guy. <laughs> right? <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah. Maybe too much drugs, too much abuse. Right. So, I know his attorney tried to use the insanity. Correct. Plea, saying that he was hearing voices. Correct. Whether you believe that or not, you know, with everything else that supposedly happened within the house later on. There definitely, obviously, was something wrong with this guy. Correct. Not right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so his trial begins, speaking of his attorney, on October 14th, 1975. So almost a whole year later. And his defense attorney, William Weber, mm -hmm. does actually shoot for the old insanity plea. And part of the voice line of defense right. is that the voices were telling him, they weren't just talking to him. Right. They were telling him his family was plotting to kill him. So you got to kill them first. Right. Kind of scenario. So the insanity plea actually gets supported by a psychiatrist for the defense, of course, mm -hmm. a Dr. Daniel Swartz. But a psychiatrist for the prosecution, a Dr. Harold Zoland, is like, no, 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 no. The guy is an abuser of LSD and heroin. And even though he does have an antisocial personality disorder... He was aware of his actions at the time of the crime. So the trial actually goes on for 22 days. And on November 21st, like a year and a week from the night of the murders, approximately, uh, 1975, he gets found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. And the judge sentenced him to uh, six congruent life sentences of 25 years to life. Now, of course, nothing's perfect. There's some issues. 
there's some missing pieces of this massacre that still doesn't add up. First, eight gunshot rifles and absolutely no one, not a neighbor, hears anything. And again, they do believe at some point the mom and Allison gets woken up. And because of the fact that they're all found in their beds, it just doesn't add up, especially since Ronnie's like changing his story every other day. Right. It's Fellini. No, it's not Fellini. I did it. No, I didn't do it. You know, just coming up with different versions so they can't even get the truth out of him. So was the time frame ever supported as far as he said he did it at three, approximately 3.15 in the morning? You know, I don't know. But that's a great question because 3.15 becomes a big thing. Right, because that would make sense for them to be in their beds. Correct. Correct. Not at 6.30 at night. Right. Right. But that's what he, in fact... He says that, but he says later the shootings actually happened at one later on okay. that I'll mention. So that's kind of the problem. Right. There's missing pieces. Things aren't adding up. And the lone survivor, the killer, is not, it's not cooperating with any truth. Right. But in 1990, Ron actually provides a very interesting upteen version of events that I actually think, after reading everything, is closer to the truth. He asserts that Don and an unknown assailant who fled the house before he could get a look, good look at him killed their parents, and Don subsequently killed their siblings. He claimed that the only person he killed was Don, and that was by accident as they struggled over the rifle. Now, to be clear... This is not the first time he shares that Don, the eldest sister, was involved. In fact, he's mentioning this theory that she did it. Mm -hmm. You know how everyone else did it but him. Right. But he's been mentioning her since 1986. But officially, Ron is the one they point the finger at and said he acted alone right. for this you know, horrendous uh, situation. However, again, because it doesn't necessarily seem logical, especially to Luisa's father, the mom, mm -hmm. grandpa. Right. His name is Michael Brigante Sr. So kind of stepping back into the 1970s, Michael actually hires a gentleman by the name of Herman Race, a former New York City supervising police detective, to investigate the murders. And he does this because he doesn't feel... That Ron acted alone. It just doesn't make sense. And he, and this is what he tells Herman. I just want to know, did he do it? And did he do it alone? Right. So he's not asking this guy to disprove that his grandson is innocent. He just, he wants to know the truth. So Race investigates. And per his investigation, he discovers evidence that shows that there were actually multiple gunmen. And he also comes to the conclusion that at least two guns were used during the commission of the crime. Now, minus the two guns present at the murder, you know, that the theory, a lot of his findings actually get corroborated by the prosecutor and the medical examiner during a private court hearing and at the trial. So a lot of things that he finds and says, I believe this happened, gets confirmed. So... Now the question is, who were the other two killers? On November 30th, 2000, meeting with author Rick Osana, who is the author of The Night the, the DeFeos Died, 
Ronnie actually confesses, and, the, and I think this is as clear as it really gets, right, to this author that he's you know working with, that along with his sister, he and one of his friends committed the murder out of desperation. He Ronnie even pens a letter stating to this version, and in this letter he writes, "It was cold-blooded murder. Period. No ghosts." No demons, just three people in which I was one. Sounds like he kind of comes clean. Right. So here's what he professes. He, he professes, confesses, that during the night of November 12th, the night before, the household had been in a state of frenzy because of another one of their father's tirade. You know, the, the cycle of abuse. Right. Then after things calmed down, Ronnie and his sister Dawn and two of his friends proceeded to get high in the basement. Now, per Ronnie, Donnie was... Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> Dawn was so furious that her father would not allow t- her to leave and be with her boyfriend in Florida that she basically, just out of pure exhaustion of the years of physical abuse, was pretty much done she'd been pushed too far she probably saw the boyfriend as a means of escape to get away from this horrific situation and when dad was like no she's like it's killing time right so ronnie's like this was her idea and he initially refuses even during ronnie's trial don's boyfriend whose name was william davidge he actually testified in court that don herself was a drug user had recently started to become extremely hostile towards her parents because they refused to allow her to live with him. So, I mean, there's some secondary validity to what he's saying. But as the drug fest goes on, you know, initially Ronnie's like, no, 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 no. And the drinking continues and the rehashing of the idea continues by dawn. Ronnie finally says, okay. So with his two friends, Ronnie and Don leave the basement while one of them accompanies them. The other kind of goes out for, and works as a lookout. Okay. So that that's the account for the two. Right. So three killers. And they head straight for the parents' room. And, of course, they're armed with the Marlin rifle. And the friend apparently had a Colt Python. So they enter the a room. Ronnie said that there was a little candle burning on the father's dresser. And they used a military-style flashlight. That is actually discovered later in another part of the house to kind of see and begin shooting. The parents are asleep, so the dad tries to get up and basically counterattack, but he's, you know, he's been shot. He doesn't know what's going on. It's 3.15 in the morning. Right. And that's when he gets struck by a second bullet and he falls on the bed dead. Mom, who's, you know, screaming and moaning and asking for help, basically gets a second bullet herself. And then at some point, somebody covers her up. Right. While that's transpiring, the friend, the nameless friend, probably freaks the fuck out. Right. Like, this is real, regardless of the drugs. Right. And he bolts. Sobering. Correct. Like, this really happened. Right. He bolts, and according to Ronnie's version, this version, He gives chase like, no, no, where are you going? We're in this together. You need to help clean up. We've got a plan here. Right. So he gives chase. And when he comes back, 
he sees that his other siblings are dead. And, and again, according to him, he goes to confront Don. And at that point in time, they fight over the rifle. And then he apparently, you know, hits her so hard that she, you know, falls back onto the bed because she finds her in her room, like okay. base, probably packing. Right. And hits her so hard, she falls unconscious on the bed. And that's when he shoots her. So he admits to killing the sister and he admits to being part of the mommy, mommy and daddy. Right. But he says, and he actually, throughout this entire situation, he never takes blame for the cho- for the, his siblings being killed. In fact, original plan was that, that somehow, some way, they were actually going to take the younger siblings to the grandparents' house. At which point in time, I don't know. But with this new theory, if you will, th- that it was the sister, it's kind of believed now that the siblings did wake up and Dawn, with the rifle, orders them back to their beds and makes them lie on their stomach. And part of the reason why they believe that they were forced to lie down on their stomach is because Mark, the 12-year-old, actually had a debilitating injury from a football incident, and he was told to sleep on his back. So when they find him on his stomach, it doesn't make sense because, you know, he's in his recovery. Right. You're not going to go against medical orders. So by virtue of that, they do believe that they were all ordered to their beds. And then, so they believe that she killed the two brothers, the youngest brothers first. And then they think that she went into Allison's room. And they believe she shot her from standing in the doorway. And and as she's, you know, standing to shoot her sister, you know, poor little Allison kind of raises her head to see what's going on. Right. And... The bullet actually enters her left cheek and exit her right ear and basically obliterates her head. Right. So this makes sense because, again, they don't believe it was just him. Right. And like I said, he's he's never admitted to killing the siblings. And, in fact, they have said, it's been documented, actually, that Ronnie always got upset whenever they started discussing the siblings' death. like. Right. I didn't want them dead kind of deal. Right. On top of all this, and the reason why I do actually think Dawn does, is because there's actually physical evidence to suggest that she was part of it. One, they find gunpowder residue Mm -hmm. on her clothes, you know, as opposed to where the bullet, I mean, it doesn't make, if she's holding the gun and shooting it, that would cause the gunpowder residue. Correct. So they find it on her nightgown and they find it on her body. And the way they find it is an indicator that she was, you know, shooting the gun at some point in time when she was alive. And then the other reason why they believe that she was part of it and that Ronnie killed her was because when they went to look at her, you know, she had suffered a huge head wound. She was shot in the in the head. And, well, blood and brain matter actually, you know, obviously leak onto her pillow and nightgown and bedclothes. <laughs> but... The way she was shot, it should have been like blood splatter, you know, brain splatter. Right. And basically her headboard, her white, pristine white headboard is clean. So they believe that she was shot somewhere else and then moved onto the bed. Okay. And in addition to all this, they also found blood splatter on 
you know, a dresser on some floorboards. So obviously they really believe that some of the killings took place in other parts of the house. Right. He even goes as far to say as, you know, with the voices and stuff, a black hooded figure handed me the rifle and told me to do it. And the weird part about that is apparently the sister used to dress up in a strange uh, black snorkel style coat and walk around the house, you know, like maybe she was she was wearing that to kill everybody. And, oh, maybe, you know, he just but I mean, he was using drugs. Everyone was doing drugs that night. Right. Who knows? Now, there's even a stranger situation where one of the main one of the first reporters, his name is Rick Moran. And he had been following the case for the last 30 years, or the first 30 years. And he actually says, and I, I'm not sure how much I believe in this, but just tossing this little theory out there. He says that the DEA was actually watching the house the night of the murders. And they actually saw her leave the house with the rifle. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because, again, eight rifle shots... Right. The DEA didn't think to knock on the door. Right. Or apprehend her when she came out with the rifle. Correct. Or report the fact that they saw her with the rifle. Or do something. Right. Anything. So there's a lot of weird things associated. And plus, too, that didn't, wouldn't make any sense anyways because he killed her with the rifle. So if she hit it right. while he was chasing down the friend, he wouldn't know where the rifle was in the first place. Right. To kill her. So just a lot of strange things out there. So, the two friends so that supposedly helped in all of this obviously were never identified. Well, he, I think he told Rick, the writer, one of the names, oh. and that person never responded. Okay. So, Mike, I was just curiosity, you know, were they the same ones that were there the day that the police arrived to find everything? Great question. I don't know. I don't know. I doubt it. But, I, I mean, that would be a great plot twist. Right. My, if, my assumption would be if they participated, they probably moved the fuck away quickly. Right. Although, at the same time, I mean, what's your best, you know, to, to kind of get your name out of things, what are you going to do? You're going to help and volunteer and, you know. Look for the dead body. Yeah. Get, right. the, get the attention on someone else. Right. Right. I, I, I'm sure you and I have seen many documentaries where the killer helped, volunteered. Right. right. To find Shows back up on the scene or. Right. Yeah. Is in the pictures of the background, like the Golden, Cake, Golden <laughs> State Killer. Right. Hi, Mom. <laughs> so, yes. Um, he, and that's the other thing. In all my research, Ronnie never mentions or it doesn't come up. Right. I can't find anything. That, you know, Billy, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it was Billy Bob. So either way, everyone who gets murdered gets buried at St. Charles Cemetery in Farmingdale. And as of right now, Ronnie's dead. I don't know if they intend to try and bury him with the family or if he's because he's been in jail. I mean, I don't know how the state of New York handles that sort of thing. Well, It'll probably come down to if there's any family members that are willing to pay for the costs of the funeral. Okay. I would think. Right. Right. So either way, 
he has died. Now, these are the infamous murders of the Amityville house, but the horrors, the paranormal horrors, as you know, Panda Mike would say, the horrors allegedly <laughs> has just begun. Right. So we're going to end uh, Amityville Horror Part 1 with this, okay? The, just with the murders. And then we'll come back with the second of regarding the Lutz family and the supposed and controversial paranormal, you know, demonic right, um, situation. Which is obviously what the movie is based off of. Correct. Yes. Correct. Okay. So a little bit of business before we head out. I'm on Facebook, guys. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. If you're interested, just send me a request. And I think that's it. That's all the business I have. Okay. <laughs> a little short and sweet tonight, but okay. All right. Either way, if you have a place that you would someday like to see where their dark corners are or have a specific tourist attraction in mind, send me an email at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. So until next time, please remember only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I hope to meet you where the dark corners are. Thank you.